This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. To the highway, in a brand new day, gotta let it go. for February 1st, 2022. We are members of the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. You can find us on the Voices of Wrestling feed or our own dedicated podcast feed on all podcast platforms and applications. You can follow us on Twitter at OpenVoiceGate. If you'd like to donate to the show, click the link in the show notes. It'll take you to our RedCircle.com landing site. And then you click the red box that says Sponsor This Podcast. No obligation whatsoever. But you can set up a one-time, a reoccurring donation. We would like to thank all our previous donors. I'm one of your hosts. It's your old pal. I'm Mike Spears. Join alongside, as always, my friend and co-host, Case Lowe. In case we had an anniversary yesterday, and that is the crux of this voice gate. Yeah, big time in the Dragon system. This is a big week as 23 years ago, as of January 31st, uh, marked the landing of Torimon Japan, the first show that this promotion had, the lineage of the promotion that we now cover dating back to that show. It it worked out nicely where we were obviously coming up on the anniversary of this, and although 23 isn't exactly a hallmark anniversary, we'll probably revisit this in two years for the 25th anniversary as well. Uh, I was coming off of an episode that was just released uh, doing the Between the Sheets podcast, with Chris Zellner and David Bixenspan. We talked for seven hours, and in that period, there was a little bit of Torimon talk, uh, so you can get Chris and, and Bix's perspective on the beginnings of this promotion and then my thoughts as well, but I had so much fun doing that, so much fun compiling notes, some of which I didn't even get to use on that show, that I talked to Mike and I said, well, let's go through the the first two tapings, the this stuff that is on the Dragon Gate Network, the January 31st launch battle, and then the first episode, or I guess the second episode, rather, covering February 5th and February 7th of 1999, because there's historic things that happen out of the gate. Not only is the first show important because it's the first show, but as you see in that second taping with Dragon Kid and Suo, which we'll get into, Magnum Tokyo versus Shima and Magnum Tokyo versus Great Sasuke, there's a lot of stuff that mattered immediately. And plus, as we'll talk about, this is not a podcast that has spent a lot of time talking about Magnum Tokyo. There are very good reasons for that. And this is kind of an <laughs> this is kind of an episode where we can do a lot of Magnum talk because I I, I don't want to jump the gun, but I was just thinking about him earlier today where we were talking to the Voices of Wrestling Discord, or maybe it was it was actually it was the Everything Elite Discord earlier this week, and you and you told the story of why Magnum was supposedly let go from Dragon Gate, which was a story that I didn't even know. Because I, it hit me that because of when I started following this promotion, which is late 2013 into 2014, 
And because of the fact that Magnum is just not very good, he is a strangely important blind spot in my Dragon System fandom. I recognize that for the first five years, really from Torimon to the impetus of Drangate, he is arguably the most important guy not named Shima in this promotion. And I really don't have a ton of strong Magnum thoughts, but the good news is that if you look at history and you look at the first month and a half of 1999, that is peak Magnum Tokyo time. Yeah, so I would say that a lot of the reason why I don't talk a lot about Magnum is I don't, he might be one of my least favorite people in the history of the promotion. <laughs> 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 I, I'm just going to call a spade a spade. Well, because but, it's like, like if you, if you take the demarcation point of our fandom, let's look at Sua. Okay. Right. Sua gone years before I started following it a decade before I started following it gone. I believe before you started following it. Correct. But, there's gold in Sua's history in this promotion. There's a lot of really important and really great Sua matches. I can't say the same for Magnum. Now, here's the big question, and this will be something that, that this would be a long-term thing because this is what you would have to go through to determine this. More four-star or better matches, Magnum Tokyo or Punch no Managa? That, okay, that is that is a great question because I'm coming in hot today. We're recording in an afternoon. Uh, Case had to do a little bit of a mental health check on me earlier. You know, like <laughs> That's, I'm firing. This is, this, we're recording early because I had to do a mental health check on Mike, and this is not uh, meant to be a flex, but I am going to an exclusive screening of the new Jackass movie after this. So we did have to record in the afternoon. Mike and I are two very different planes today, but we're in an equally sassy mood. I because if you remember correctly, longtime listeners will know last year, I guess two a year and a half ago now is 2020. We did a list of every four star punch Tamanaga match out there. And there's more than you think just because of the amount of great multi-man matches that he's been in with Magnum. You know, he's been in, especially if you look at like 830.03, that four way tag team match. He's been in some of the greatest matches in this promotion's history, there's also Magnum and Milano versus Shima and June from, from 2003. But I probably lean punch. And, and it's something that with Magnum and he is like this really central figure. And, it, and it's a very kind of interesting thing. Like, case you know how I kind of collect random Dragon System memorabilia. Like, this is it, true. It, like, this is like one of my things, and uh, I think it was last year, uh, my dear brother for my birthday somehow found the program to my favorite Dragon System show of all time, Absolutemente 2002, and which, by the way, timely as well, that just got uploaded to the network remastered. Go watch it if you haven't seen it. Yeah, that would uh, be what we'd be talking about if we weren't talking about this. It just so happened we had a week with too much <laughs> classic content to cover. I was almost annoyed when I saw that get uploaded. Like, oh, wh why can't it? it there's going to be gaps in May. Why can't they just upload it then? But it's it's up there on the network now. If you've never seen it, go watch it. If you have seen it, go watch it again. But you look at the cover of it, and like that's one of the great things that they've always done in this promotion. It's something worth talking about when we talk about the uh, landing King of Dragon, the first two episodes of Amino's Amigos. You, you look at how they marketed it, and it's very much like, and you could see it coming off of these two shows, with the exception of one person that doesn't really become a figure in twenty until 2000. But you look at how they market the shows, and you look at the cover of this, uh, uh, this Absolute Mente 2002 T2P versus Torimon Japan. 
and you have certain people on the cover of it. You get Shima, you get Masaki Mochizuki, you get Ultimo for his big return match, and you get Magnum Tokyo. And it's because Magnum Tokyo, up until he left, really, he was a looming presence amongst the Dragon System. And it's something that uh, a lot of stuff about Magnum kind of goes by the wayside just because he's been away for so long. He had the aborted return to Hustle, of all places, Detective Alan Kuroki. But after he left uh, Dragon Gate and and began 2007, really, he was gone in 2006, that was it for Magnum Tokyo. So, like, we're talking about someone who's been out of the system for 16 years. He doesn't necessarily have the black ball that others may have, but he left under... I, I think it's fair to say, just because I don't... I, as we are the podcast on record about this, I just, like, supposedly, Coakley, he left under very bad circumstances, and he was never brought back around even when Ultimo returned. He's just someone that's kind of lost to the lost to the winds of history even though he is this huge figure and no bigger than in 1999 and dragon and torimon japan and the, the the landing of the promotion in 131.99 yeah it's not a comprehensive list but you can certainly look at the figures involved in the 2019 20th anniversary celebration and you can look at who was there and who wasn't there and given that they repaved the bridge of ultimo and yet some others didn't come back. I think that says all we need to know about their relationship. But in 1999, specifically on this first tour, and specifically the entrance of Magnum Tokyo on this very first show, January 31st, 1999, Cork and Hall, you go, oh my God, he's a star. Oh my God, this is incredible. And then unfortunately, you know, uh, time went on and, and maybe Magnum didn't live up to the hype. But yeah, no, it's it's, I understand the desire to look at this guy, look at the charisma that he he was sometimes capable of and go, oh, I want to build my promotion around this guy. It just so happens that ultimately the in-ring wasn't there for me. I wouldn't watch Hustle, uh, let alone Magnum and Hustle with a gun to my head, so I can't say anything about that. But I know in Torimon, in Drangate, he was a man that didn't always live up to the push that he had and in in a weird way, as you look at this first class, and that's part of what Mike and I want to do on this podcast, was obviously we'll talk about the first show, the matches on the first Vamos Amigos, or rather the second Vamos Amigos. Uh, but, you know, we want to do some introduction as to, you know, this original class of guys, you know, the original five, and then the second term and third term students. I guess we should start with Magnum and, and his background, which is that, you know, Magnum was a guy who was a wrestling fan growing up. He was a salary man working in his father's company and he saw Ultimo working in uh, WAR wrestling romance and said that he wanted to become a wrestler. And for years was essentially Tenru's personal assistant. If I have that story, correct. Yeah. So he ended up like also working part-time in WAR. If my, if my memory serves me correct, uh, case you've done a lot of this research. A lot of this for me is, is going off my memory. So yeah, I, I got, I got to, I got to look up now to see if Magnum worked in. He never war. wrestled in WWE. He never did, but I think he worked behind the scenes because he was basically. Yes, no, that, 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 yes, that he did. Yes. Cause he basically was Tenru's uh, assistant and yes. that became some, and that became such like an enduring relationship, at least through the time that Magnum was around Dragon Gate didn't don't see much of Magnum around Tenru now, which I mean that speaks more about Magnum 
as well. <laughs> but it, it, it's something that like Tenru worked in Dragon Gate a lot, and especially I know Jay was was tweeting about this, the Renaissance stable, which was supposed to be based around like Tenru kind of as a mentor for these older wrestlers that were trying to prove the clock was that they could stop the clock and it was supposed to be uh, Magnum Tokyo, Don Fuji, Azushi, Kanda, and Masaki Mochizuki kind of became closer to Zetterans in the end. But I mean, Tenru worked at Kobe World. Like he was like a big figure. And for, for a while, he was considered like a godfather of the promotion because of Magnum. It's probably the last promotion that he worked for on a semi-regular basis because he he's shows up in 2005 works through 2006 i think he's done by the end of 2006 but at that point he's he's mainly just doing one-offs after that i i don't remember a more sustained tenru run in a single promotion post 2006 yeah unless you're going to consider like your traditions and like those kind of things but those are one-off promotions yes like, those we, are fake promotions i i, I mean we, we could talk another day about me and my belief about most of these promotions and what their and what their purposes are, Zero One is one of them as well. But it, when you like look at Magnum, like he came in and he came in older. And when you start off and you talk about like the first five, he was the one that um, North American or international audiences would be most aware of because when Ultima would bring the first class to uh, WCW and they would work scattered scattered tapings, they would mainly be jobbing. Magnum was the one who stuck. Because he became a member of the Dancing Fools with Alex Wright and Disco Inferno, and yes, that's which, its uh, own which, vein of which, the weirdness. Which led about. to a promo in which Disco Inferno told Magnum to go kill himself, which is how that unit ended. Oh. And uh, uh, several years later, I guess he was pretty happy because that's why whenever he talks about working Japan, it's because of Absolute Mente 2002. God, Which then, that, that... didn't Disco bury Torimon when he, yes, he, when he was asked about that show? Oh, fuck Disco Inferno. I don't know of a more annoying person in all of wrestling. But just like a contemptible figure. And 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 that's not even about Magnum. But uh, <laughs> well, well, I, I will say this because this is primarily what we talked about in between the sheets. Given all that we covered, which was primarily North American wrestling on that show, outside of talking mainly about the death of Giant Baba and then Torimon, was you look at the way WCW used their foreign talent, in particular their Japanese wrestlers, outside of maybe Liger. It seemed like from the jump that they just had a certain level of respect for the Torimon wrestlers that they didn't have for a Nagata or a Kensuke Sasaki or whatever other New Japan guy showed up again, with the exception of maybe Liger. Even then, I'm not totally committed to that. It seems like everybody knew that these Torimon guys could connect to an American audience to some degree. And as I think we've talked about on this show, I, I know Mike and I have spent a lot of time in private talking about it, but... Eric Bischoff gives an interview in March of 2001 when people still think the fusion deal is going to happen. And one of the things that he says in a Wrestling Observer Live interview to Dave and Brian is that he was planning uh, to go on a trip to Japan to meet with Ultimo to iron out the deals of a Torimon in WCW relationship. And I can't think of the guy's name and it's going to drive me crazy, but they had brought in a guy supposedly to book the cruiserweight division with an emphasis on pushing these Torimon guys, which means that, you know, whatever the six or so matches that Magnum had and that Shima had and that Fuji had in this promotion, you know, WCW at its height clearly left an impression on people and left a positive impression on those in management. 
Yeah, and it's something that I think it, it wasn't Jason Harvey, wasn't the person there, even though him no, and... it's not Harvey. It was some it, it, some guy who my impression from what I know about him was he was kind of nailer before nailer. If that makes gotcha. sense to you, if you know who Rob yeah. Nailer is, but I can't think of his name. Somebody will let us know. But like Magnum was very unique when we talk about like the first five students, especially when you compare him to someone that I mean kind of became paired up immediately with as we see in these shows and throughout their really up until Dragon Gate they were kind of paired as like there's the three aces it was him it was Mochizuki who doesn't really come along until 2000 and and Dragon Gate he does make an appearance and we'll talk about that later and Shima because Shima has a distinctly different path getting into wrestling yeah so Shima idolized Ultimo Dragon as a kid funny how that relationship has worked out and he was uh, someone who who went to Mexico at a young age, but even before he landed in Mexico, he had had a little bit of wrestling experience working in the backyard, essentially what is a backyard promotion of JWA Kanzai. Mike Spears, this is your ballpark. What can you tell us about Shima's beginnings? So Shima, and it's interesting, him and Magnum, and that's kind of why I wanted to do the segue here. So Magnum was... In his 20s, he was someone who had somewhat of a career. Shima was someone that, like, he his uh, upbringing was a lot more difficult. He talked about, like, already working while in middle school and high school. Of course, Japanese middle school does not equate to North American middle school, just age-wise. And he, he came from a working-class family. And he unlike others who could go do dojo tests and things like this at his young age, he wrestled in JWA Kansai, which was this very interesting pseudo backyard sumo or pseudo amateur. Like there is like this whole idea in Japan and like there's articles that pop about it intermittently of like wrestling clubs, university wrestling clubs, which are basically Guys in college who just like want to wrestle each other, like Hiroshi Tanahashi has talked about being in a university wrestling club, and it's not like Greco Roman. This isn't like what Binkei did in college. This is like guys who just would go and do like backyard kind of together. And JWA Kansai was a big group that it existed for a long time. But like that was the thing about this. Like it only closed down in particular in 2000 and in the year 2000, actually. But it was kind of a backyard kind of organization. And Shima, as a very, very young guy, like I think he, he was a teenager at this point, wrestled in JWA Kansai as the mask flying man, Mickey Hayano Jr. And that's what he did leading up until he discovered Torimon, before he discovered that uh, sh- that Ultimo Dragon was opening a school in Nakapon attached to IWRG, which we'll talk about that in a little bit. And that was kind of how he got into it, because when you think about like Magnum Tokyo, Magnum Tokyo in his 20s, Shima was born in 1977. Like, that's the crazy thing about Shima. He's only 44, and he was doing this as a teenager in the mid-90s. I will say now, and I will wax poetically about him more later, but you watch Shima in 1999, and you go, oh my god, thank god this man chose this profession, because I can't imagine him doing anything else. He is... More so than any of these guys, because there's there's one in particular wrestler, wrestler who we'll talk about in just a second, who you watch him in 1999 and you go, oh, that is not a finished product. He still has a ways to go. And Shima, even from the little bit of Mexico footage we have in 97 and 98, and then when Crazy Max lands in Michinoku Pro in mid-98, up through this debut and beyond, 
He is a natural. He was somebody who from day one just oozed charisma, great in the ring, obviously developed as years went on, but somebody who I just love from this time period. Whereas Dragon Kid, the next man that we'll talk about, um, maybe didn't hit the ground running as well as Shima did. But the background on Dragon Kid is that he wanted to be an FMW wrestler and he was told no uh, by FMW. I believe that was because of size requirements. I can't imagine anything else that would have prevented yes. him from mm-hmm. being an FMW I- wrestler. But uh, yeah, he found out that Ultimo was opening a school. But the thing is with Dragon Kid, and I will reference uh, it, for this part especially, Jay's history of Dragon Gate podcast that he did years ago were so valuable for doing research for this. So I will give him credit here. As Jay mentioned that Dragon Kid was very poor growing up. And so to pay for the entrance fee to Torimon, he became an FMW referee. And as you might have seen, he excelled at essentially doing matches where you would get hazard pay. He's uh, the referee of a number of exploding barbed wire, awful, whatever contraption that FMW set up. There was a point in time in which Dragon Kid was going to be the referee for that. And then on top of, you know, getting the money from that gig, as well as a recommendation from Jinsei Shinzaki to Ultimo Dragon, he landed in the original Torimon class as well. And, and it's really fascinating because... Dragon Kid started forming the relationship with Hayabusa then during his time in FNW that really sped forward throughout Dragon System history. I mean, I I don't know if it's still the case. I think it is. But when Hayabusa started his post-wrestling career of singing, Dragon Gate would use some of his songs as like the outro music. Uh, like the end of the show, they'll play a Hayabusa song. They did a special match, I believe in 2010. I'm just going off the top of my head where it was Dragon Kid, BB Hulk, and Pac dressed up as the three faces of Hayabusa. So, I mean, a lot of this stuff, like, if you want to talk about, like, continuity within Dragon Gate and within Toriumon, starts with, like, these three promotions. We, we talked a little bit about WAR with uh, Magnum Tokyo. There's other guys we'll talk about more involved in WAR, FMW, and then Michinoku Pro. Yeah, and in a, in a weird way, you know, you can expand that tree out farther. We typically use the start of Universal in 1990 as what would become the Dragon System because you have there Hamada and then a pre-masked Ultimo Dragon who became a star of that promotion. That bleeds into him going to Mexico. And then in Japan, like Mike said, you have FMW, you have WAR, and you have Michinoku Pro. Two guys who worked in WAR, I'm sorry, one guy who worked in WAR, uh, both guys and Hamaguchi trainees. Don Fuji was a guy who trained in WAR, never debuted, uh, but did business stuff behind the scenes for them and then moved to Mexico for the original Torimon class. Yeah, and the other thing to add in about Don Fuji, and if you follow him on Twitter, you will see a bunch of photos of this. He was before WAR, he was a sumo wrestler. He was a he got up, I believe, to the third highest thing like it was the one that before you really got paid as a sumo wrestler but he like like he'll post photos of like him and like his uh kimono visiting like the golden gate bridge on like a sumo trip and such like this but after he left that he became a he he worked behind the scenes of war he did training there and then he that that's why he always has like the sumo moves and he always talks of this and when we talk about these shows he's referred to as sumo fuji because that's what his background was my take on young Don Fuji, and you don't have to say anything. If if silence falls upon this podcast, I will take it as a sign to move on to Sua. But my take on a young Don Fuji, very, very handsome man. I really, really like Great look. 
great I, look. I think he's devilishly handsome. And now, obviously, he kills it with the housewife demographic currently. But I look at like a 1998, 1999 Don Fuji. That man looks damn good. You, you know what struck me? And it it, it struck me. Uh, Mifune, the Japanese actor who was a part of a lot of uh, uh, Akira Kurosawa films where he had like long hairs and like the beard like this. He has a kind of a look that's not dissimilar to that. It's an awesome look, and he's wearing the the singlet with one with one strap, and it looks like he has like a, a moashi on. It, it's a great look. It, it it's understandable why he moved away from it, but for mid for late nineties, mid twenties, Don Fuji, no wonder he 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 likes remaining a bachelor. <laughs> a, a man who did not debut with such a great look, given that his gear was a tank top with a number sixty nine on it and track pants. Sua is the final of the original five Torimon guys. He was also much like Don Fuji and then later Milano Collection AT and Shingo Takagi and Animal Hamaguchi guy. And that is really all I know about Sua before his time in Mexico. Sua is like one of the ones that's kind of that's hard to find stuff about. And it kind of makes sense given how he kind of how, how a lot like Milano, like he was such a central figure and now we don't really talk about him at all anymore. But I, I get stunned by that. If I look at results from, you know, late 2002, 2003, 2004, right before the split, I forget like, oh, that's right. Sue was just in all of these main events winning matches like he was a UDG champion before. I believe he got hurt and had to vacate the belt. But right. I forget just how dominant he was in Torimon. So Sue before Torimon, like you mentioned, he he did animal, animal Hamaguchi. He was a construction worker, and he tried to enter rings. Really? I did not know that. Yeah, that's wild, isn't it? That is interesting. So that is the original five of Toriyama. When we talk about the first class, it's Magnum Tokyo, it's Shima, Dragon Kid, Don Fuji, and Sua. Now, in the main event of the first Torimon show, it is those five guys and then a sixth man and a six-man tag team match main event that we'll review here in just a little bit. The sixth man in that match is a man we now recognize as Super Shisa. At the time, he was all caps Saito. And Saito was a Michinoku Pro trainee who did not make it through the system for whatever reason. At some point, he moved to Mexico and was doing a lot of training with Ray Mendoza there. I know there's a picture that exists of him and Ray and Hayabusa training in Mexico. So I'm assuming that's around 1994 because that's when Hayabusa went to Mexico to work for a little bit. But I don't know context other than that. I just know that he trained for a while with Ray Mendoza and then he was already in Mexico when Ultimo brought his students there. So the the big five, they all debut May 11th, 1997 at a show, uh, the first Torimon Mexico show. Saito joins the crew towards the end of 1997 and then is obviously there with them in Japan when they land there in 1999. Yep, that's that's my understanding of it as well. Yeah, no, he was someone that and but like when we were like when I mentioned this, like he's like the star, like the M Pro guys that really start being involved there. And you know, Michinoku Pros, as we'll talk about, healthy part of the fabric of early Torimon. Yeah, so if you go through the timeline here, just kind of an abridged version of how Torimon came to be, like I said, the the big debut was May eleventh, nineteen ninety seven, on a show headlined by Ultimo versus Negro Casas. The other thing that you should take note of in nineteen ninety seven, and this is a match that I have to give credit to Rob Viper. He unearthed it a few years ago, 
and I made sure to save it, upload it, and now I send out the link every once in a while on November 14th, 1997 on a CMLL show in Arena, Mexico as a favor to Ultimo. These six guys debuted in Arena, Mexico. It's the first time that we have a full big match with big spots and guys going for it. Uh, this is Dragon Kid's official debut as Little Dragon, so I, I stand corrected. He did not work that first Torimon Mexico show, but rather his first match is in Arena Mexico, and although Cage Match credits Rio Saito in this match, it is all cap Saito, so we get what would become the first Torimon main event on the November 14th, 1997 CMLL show. I've tweeted out that link before. If I remember, I will tweet out that link on the Open the Voice Get account when we upload this episode. Mike, briefly, let's talk about these second-term students, if that's cool with you. Yeah, because we got some interesting figures here. So, in, in general, when we talk about Tormon and we talk about Tormon Generation, it basically consisted of these wrestlers, but the, but there's like a hierarchy about when they came to Mexico. But there's the first five in Saito, and then we have these other people, and then we'll talk about people who came in after that. And, you know, it's an interesting bunch here. And, you know, when you look at, like, the first term, there's not as many of them left around, but a lot of the second term still is in Dragon Gate. Yeah, so Kenichiro Rai, Arakan is the first guy that we'll talk about. He was an FMW Dojo guy. He had trained there going back to 1994 and then just never debuted for FMW. And, the, and then he made the bounce to Torimon. And he had a fruitful career there. And now, as we know, he's the king of indie sleeves. Yeah, yeah. And th the thing that's really great about this, that watching Mama Smigo, I forgot that his nickname was already Arakan before the first show, <laughs> which is tremendous. Other than the amount of hair on his head, nothing has changed about this man from 1997 onwards. Yeah, yeah. And the one thing I wish he'd bring back is his headband that he'd wear it at ringside. It, it, it's a great look for him. A, lo a that, lot of strong looks put around in 1999. A lot of strong looks, one of which a man who I wish would bring back the full bodysuit, Genki Horiguchi. So I have a lot of intel on Genki, and I have to thank our friend Lorenzo, who I just paid a large sum of money to, to translate... Uh, Genki just did a three-part sit-down interview with Weekly Puro, and that was uploaded on their YouTube channel. And I was I was running the closed captioning through YouTube's auto translation, which is fucked. It is you under it, it correctly translates about one or two words per sentence, and then the rest of it you are just up to your own devices as to what these guys could possibly be talking about. So I got with Lorenzo, and we now have. A ton of insight into Genki's upbringing, his current uh, career, and his future goals. And I don't necessarily know what to do with all of it just yet. So keep your eyes peeled at Open Voice Gate. We'll hopefully have some really cool Genki Horiguchi info real soon. But the stuff that matters as it, as it pertains to Genki coming to Mexico is this is a guy who went to an SWS show in his hometown growing up. He fell in love with Tenru, he fell in love with Ultimo, and he decided that he wanted to be a pro wrestler. And his first shot at being a pro wrestler, this is something that I just learned last week for the first time, was that he attempted to get into Yoshiaki Yatsu's SPWF dojo, which much like JWA Kanzai was a micro indie of a micro indie. I don't know if SPWF has ever made tape before. If it has, I certainly haven't seen it, but it was run by Yatsu, and Horiguchi tried to get in. He had a tryout with them, 
and they rejected him. And to the delight of Genki's mother, they rejected him, but that only fueled Horiguchi more. He found out through Weekly Pro that Ultimo had started a school in Mexico with no size requirements, and Horiguchi went there and has been the beating heart of the Dragon system ever since. Yeah, and Horiguchi, like, is such an interesting figure because you look at a lot of the guys who stuck around a lot of the guys around there he also a lot like shima uh working class background single mother his mom for the longest time i don't know if she still does this but whenever he would do his big homecoming show she runs a restaurant in his hometown and she would be running the concession stand and be like making the specials for her restaurant for everyone coming to town that always was like a big draw there so genki you no wonder he's such a great girl's dad because he is a mama's boy yeah, I need to I need to get a scanner and post on our Twitter. I have one of the Drangit yearbooks. It's from either 2014 or 2015, and they do a whole spread about Genki and his family. And there was so much good girl dad Horiguchi energy on those spreads. And I, I need to I need to share that with people if I remember to. Uh, Stalker Ichikawa also in this class, and I just learned a lot about Stalker through. I it was I think it was a local newspaper that was doing right. daily features on Dragon Gate for a while. Yeah, so they did one on Stalker, and what I got from it, again, very rough Google translating, is Stalker was a huge Tiger Mask fan who one day found out that Ultimo was running a school in Mexico with no height or weight requirements, so he flew himself down to Mexico, and, and as I could gather from the story, very quickly after he got there, Ultimo sat him down and said, uh maybe maybe the worst wrestler ever is your thing maybe we shift focus and have you become the worst wrestler of all time and that has been a very successful career path for one konomami chikawa it's so cool the fact like ultimo's the way that ultimo determined gimmicks back then (laughs) either being tipsy and watching uh tarzan looking over masada yoshino and said grow out your hair or (laughs) or 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 going like i don't think you're gonna be a good you you're you're not believable just be just be a bad pro wrestler and that made him into the greatest comedy wrestler of all time but just with that one idea it's it's really, really impressive. And then there's Yasushi Kanda, who I can't find out anything about his background. And Mike, I get the impression you don't know much about his background either. I have tried. Kanda is a man of mystery. He is someone that it, it's difficult to kind of like suss out. I, I'm trying to remember those timeline podcasts, and I didn't have enough time to go back and reevaluate those. But he is someone that like, is such like an interesting figure just because like he very much is the fabric of the promotion in a way. But, and I, I I'm right now talking and rambling a little bit just so I could see, a, I have one last ditch way of trying to figure out where, uh, get some information about him. Uh, Yazushi Kanda is someone that, yeah, I, he passed the, uh, he, uh, he was second generation member moved to Mexico in 1997 and it was the his debut match was against Saito, and that's he teamed with Tajiri a lot in Mexico, which is wild. I yeah. I did not know that. If footage of that exists, I need to hunt it down immediately because uh, while I'm not necessarily fond of 2022 Tajiri, late 90s Tajiri I can get into. So that is very interesting. I did not know that. Uh, blue trunks Tajiri, fantastic. Blue, blue trunks Tajiri into. 
the thing is, and this is not the podcast for this. This is the podcast I did with the Saguna Kata guys, which I'm sure will happen one day. But Tajiri as a WWE TV worker, unreal. That man understood what he was doing, where the goddamn hard cam was, and he knew how to make the most of it. So really up through 2005, I'm a big fan. And then after that, I really I don't I don't have a connection to his smash run, although I know a lot of people do. And now in all Japan, he can go kick rocks. But that is not this podcast. The other member that we need to talk about is one of the two third term students, a man who is still going strong today. And that is Susumu Mochizuki. Now, Susumu Yokosuka, uh, technically a third term student, but debuted ahead of his other classmates and was on this debut Torimon show. Yeah, so Susumu was someone who took the protest for New Japan, didn't get in because of size. He then he then uh, trained a little bit in Michinoku Pro before doing that, and it's kind of fitting that you would have him come out right after Kanda because the two guys really were attached to the hip up until Kanda's uh, hiatus he took because of the cervical concussion he had. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very good intel on Susumu. So those are the cast of characters that we have for this first Torimon show. Mike, do we just want to go from the opening match onwards? How do you want to tackle the rest of this podcast? In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking, ah, maybe I can pull a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card. But with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now. Introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now, when I buy Slab Packs at Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. I was able to open an Arena Club Slab Pack, and, and I'll be honest, it was a lot better than what you normally do. Say you go to a card show, and there's a random innocuous brown bag of cards and yeah you can open it and look it's going to be junk you're you, you know what i mean like you know what you're probably going to get in those maybe you find that fun and sometimes i do sometimes i like just opening up cards and saying oh, hey look at some random cards or whatever but if you're really in this game to to find value and find particular cards it sucks to have to buy these mystery packs and it ends up being you know almost nothing you know nothing of value not with arena club you can display, again, of all available cards, hit rates, grading. So you know that when you're opening up the slab pack, you are going to get something valuable. You are getting something good. And Arena Club, in addition to having those great slab packs we just talked about, is also a marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, displaying, all that sort of stuff. But those Arena Club slab packs, man, they are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your polls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling, and you can have them officially graded by Arena Club as well. So again, setting these things off, it's going to be officially graded by Arena Club. And the Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent with full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. So whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform that you have to check out. So right now, I've got a special offer here for Voices of Wrestling Network listeners. You can get 10% off of your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Now, that's a crazy offer. That's 10% off a $400 slab pack. $40 off right there. 10% off your first purchase. No matter what that purchase is, 10% off. 
off. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W net, arenaclub.com slash V-O-W net for 10% off your first purchase on Arena Club. And we thank them for sponsoring the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. Yeah, let's just start with this. This is, you'll see this show in various forms. Its technical name is Vamanos Amigos. If you go to the Dragon Gate Network, they have everything now up to, up through Absolutamente 2002. This is the first show here. It's called the King of Dragon Tour, and it launched in January 31st, 1999, with footage from, I don't know when the air date of the show was, but most of the footage from the show was from 131.99. There's one thing that'll come later. And it opened with like this with like these clips of Arena Nakapon with like the little bios. So kind of what we've been talking about for the last half hour. A little bios of each person, but also some of the people that would be later on in the episode. And the first match that we saw, and the thing about Vamanos Amigos is with the exception really of the main event, a lot of the stuff is joined in progress and heavily edited. But the first match was Ginki Horiguchi versus Yazushi Kanda. Yazushi Kanda won with the Geka Judo elbow. Yeah, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Kanda and Horiguchi still two main figures in the promotion. Horiguchi to a greater extent than Kanda, but Kanda still using that elbow drop today. I will say off the bat, it's interesting watching this show because this is not a very good show. It's essential. I think if you're a fan of this promotion, you should watch it. But even by the April Cork and Hall, that second tour, everyone on the roster is so much better. And what we see on this undercard with Kondo and Horiguchi and with Arakan versus Susumu is we see a lot of rudimentary, very simple kind of one step up from young boy expedition matches, exhibition matches, where, you know, they're they're doing their holds and they're doing their thing. Horiguchi has that undeniable charisma, but it's just it's just kind of there. And it's very interesting to watch Given the way that some of the current rookies, you know, the Ahashi brothers and Hayakawa and SB Kento a few years ago, it's interesting watching those guys who feel like such complete products from their first match onwards. And you have these guys who, again, they're not bad, but also there's nothing great about this first show. Yeah. And like the big thing about this first match, and it's something that was a big thing in Tormon, Mexico, was that, and I don't know how much you picked up on this on commentary was the fact that Ginky Horiguchi won, was the reigning Young Dragons Cup winner. He won it in 1998. And he and that was the big thing on commentary. It was like, oh, he was that. And that was like the top student trophy. And that is a wild trophy after the split to see who won it since. And Rocky Romero won it once, which is kind of wild. wild. And Helico is the Young Dragons Cup winner. But Masaki Mochizuki was the reigning chain, winner of the Young Dragons Cup. And that was kind of the big thing there his bodysuit was kind of awesome because it kind of reminds you of skydas bodysuit yeah, in a way very much so um yes i i believe we've done this on the show before because i think i mentioned that i want to do an article on the young dragons cup at some point but just to go through these winners 1997 magnum tokyo 1998 genki horiguchi 1999 yasushi kanda 2000 malano collection at 2001 toru washi 2002 and i believe 
this match is either on the no it's not on the dragon gate network yet it will be soon taiji ishimori won the 2002 young dragons cup in a match over shuji kondo that is very good 2003 was takeshi minamino 2004 rocky romero 2005 and here's a name for you this is post split now dragon gate is already its own property kazuchika okada and then 2009 trauma 2 and 2010 and helico uh, filling out the gap here, I do have 2006 through 2008. You, you oh, ready for not. another yes, name please, for please. 2006? 2006, Kota Abushi. Not bad. Not bad. Yeah. That, is, that is an illustrious list of names there. Ultimo, say what you will about him. He nails Young Dragons Cup booking. Oh, he does. He does. Uh, other participants in the Kota Abushi went up against... Uh, Brian Lee, different Brian Lee than most people think about. Dr. Karante Jr., who I do not think, which was a gimmick that was done by Mystico, the actual Mystico, not Mystico 2, like the one that was Karistico, is now back to Mystico. I think it was like one of his siblings there. 2007, Ryuji Yamaguchi. 2008, Satoshi Kajiwara. 2009, as Case said, Toro, uh, Trauma 2, and Helco in 2010. And the last one, Magnus. Like the TNA Magnus? No, no, there's a Luchador <laughs> Magnus. Okay. Oh no, the rest of the rest of these are wild. The rest of these are wild. <laughs> Taru- like, is Nick Nick Aldis a young Dragons Cup champion? How did I miss that? <laughs> no, no, no. Uh here are some other people in that last one that's in 2012. It was uh also Brazo de Platino Jr., who part of the Brazo family. I don't think that's Psycho Clown, but I think that's his brother. I know that Cubs fan listens, and he will let me know. Yeah, this. Cubs fan is probably pissed listening to this segment because I just, I just <laughs> get the feel like he's listing in anger right now. That uh, is, according miss- to Cage Match, Brazo de Plata Jr. is Psycho Clown. Platino, not Plata, not Platino. Oh, See, yeah, that was okay. My bad. Yeah, uh, Tarus. Don't know if that's Black Tarus, but Tar uh, Tarus Demas three sixteen. Yes, that one. Did you say that? Uh that satoshi uh kajiwara won one of these young dragons cups or he was just in one one in 2008 i always liked him i feel like that career should have been better because he landed in kinsuke office and and then later diamond ring and i always i always thought he was better than that like he works with like nakajima and before he had his prime miyahara and I always thought he was kind of on Miyohara's level at that point. Like, if you go back and watch Miyohara and Diamond Ring, he's not exactly anything to write home about. But I like Kajiwara. I wish that career would have worked out better. So I- I'm counting that as another dub for Ultimo in his Young Dragons Cup booking. Yeah, so that was his second Young Young Dragons Cup. He advanced to the finals two months after debuting. So putting more things like this, and he's considered one of the last graduates of Torimon, Mexico. Yeah. Yeah, very talented wrestler. So, UDO6, man. UDO6. <laughs> that is our thoughts on Yasushi Kanda versus Genki Horiguchi, also. <laughs> yeah, so then we had Kanicho Rai versus Sumu Mochizuki. Uh, Kanicho Rai got the biggest pop of the first half of the show, winning with a turning top rope he- uh, headbutt. His offense at this point was almost all headbutts, and Corkin loved it. Corkin popped crazy for him, headbutting Susumu Mochizuki, who in that after the match, Susumu got mad, slapped him, he gave him a headbutt again. The crowd went crazy again and they did a handshake. I don't remember if Arkin does it in this match, but one of my favorite spots in Dragon System history is when he would counter missile drop kicks with a headbutt. I think somebody on American TV should should steal that spot. 
again, I don't know if it happened here, but this is also one of those examples. We talk about how Susumu Yokosuka just sneaky great for 20 something years now. And other than Shima, let me, let me look at this roster other than Shima, other than Saito, because I think Saito's really, really good on this show. Susumu might be the most complete package at this point. I think so. I think so. Especially like when you look at like the main event, really, I think it's, I, I think Susumu, like you see the through line there and there's not like a big jump later in their career of which we'll talk about someone who had that big jump because it was not a strong effort or not a great effort. I shouldn't say strong effort. The, the guy got put into some big scenarios there, but Susumu lo- looks like, like how you'd imagine a younger Susumu. He was not throwing the Jumbo Nokachis at this point, but he was, you know, if you, if one were to imagine what a very young Susumu uh, Yokosuka would look like in the ring, especially one that was only, he was, he was not even 21 years old case. <laughs> he would, he didn't turn 21 until the next month. That's, that's gnarly to think about. I was thinking about something else with Susumu, and this seems like the type of podcast that we can get into this. Is he the best wrestler ever? with the worst gear possible because i was yes yes easily yes his gear has always been awful which is funny because now he makes gear and i love the stuff that he's made he's been making masks lately just put that on on his instagram i believe but i was looking at some results a few days ago just bored i wasn't doing anything special just in my free time i'm looking at dragon gate results because i have nothing else going on but i saw that there was a a Shima and Matt Seidel versus BB Hulk and Jushin Thunder Liger match. And I looked at those names on paper and I said, well, that sounds like something I'd like that I'd like to see. And I looked through the files that I have access to and indeed it did make TV. And I, I did watch it. Spoiler alert. Very, very good match. But Susumu pops up on that show. And this is 2006. This is him coming off of his first Dreamgate run. And he has that purple and gold full body singlet on. And it is such a bad look. It's amazing. Yeah, and like he is one of the all-time wrestling t-shirt guys as well. Yes, that's a very good... For a guy who was in tremendous shape, never gets blown up, has a good body, uh, clearly cares about his presentation, and wrestles in a t-shirt. Yeah, maybe. I, I'm someone who has uh, a form of eczema sometimes, especially in my hands. Maybe it's something that, like, the contact in the ring, you know, maybe he should have go, like, hey, Ginky, can I wear your bodysuit? Just so, you know, like that. Maybe it's, like, a, a contact thing that he just doesn't, he doesn't like going against canvas. I mean, probably the one guy in wrestling who'll never get a staph infection. Say, say what you old that's a Subiakoska. This man will never get a staph infection. <laughs> the one thing you can say that he has going for him for sure. Absolutely. Uh, next match, uh, Soccer Ichikawa versus someone that we've not talked about yet, Case. The fourth member of Crazy Max, Taru, where Taru won with a, with a Taru driller. And I forgot that this was the gimmick that he would do at the time. He immediately went and got a Polaroid camera and got a check he made. Yeah, so we do have to talk about Taru. That is obviously the worst thing we ever have to do on this podcast. It bums us out when it occurs, but we do have to talk about Taru because he is a Buku Dojo guy, a legit karate karate dojo run by Mike Spears' main man, Koji Katao. Uh, Guys that would pop up in Dragon Gate through the Buku Dojo, Masaki Mochizuki, who debuts on the second show, Taru, who's here, 
Chocobal Kobe was a, also a member of the dojo as well as, and I, I have in my notes as T2P Kawabata. I can't think of his first name, <laughs> but the Kawabata that was briefly in T2P also comes from the Buku Dojo as well as former president Okamura, who was obviously business partners with Ultimo Dragon from this time through 2004. Yeah, uh, Taru... Uh... He's Taru. It's one of those things that, like, that's, like, the big thing about uh, Magnum never showing up other than I I didn't mention this earlier. I saw – I told you, like, I seen a photo of Magnum, like, four years ago, right? Yeah, and so – I think I, I think I just asked you this, but I already don't remember the answer. So Magnum is just fat now, but Sue was in poor health. Is that correct? Yeah, so Magnum right now, I get because we didn't really talk about like their post career. So Magnum pretty much disappeared, show backed up and Hustle through the end of Hustle, did not go do Smash and Wrestling New Classic and all the other Tajiri promotions he was done by then. He runs karate dojos. And I saw a photo of him where he was wearing a rather tight polo shirt that did not look good on him because he had that there there's a reason like when we start talking about Magnum and how they portray Magnum, he could not be a it, it would be kind of disappointing for the audience if Magnum came back around. Whereas uh, Sua has Sua went to Noah. There was a very acrimonious split uh, caused somewhat by Magnum Tokyo. That that's a common theme with Magnum and his time in the Dragon System, getting people to say "fuck this guy, I'm out." Uh, and he ended up working in Noah until he started having some really severe back problems. Originally, they thought it was like cervical sprains, but later. When he tried to come back and had to retire again, it's called like the ossification of the lumbar, which basically is that some of your parts of your muscles gets calcified. It's just gnarly. It's gnarly stuff in the guy. And it's just that's why he's not he's not been seen since he stepped away that second time from Noah. It bless his heart. Like that's just well, like I read what medically that was. I was like, that sucks. So, yeah, yeah, it's horrible. So this match. I kind of like uh, the Torimon reunion match between <laughs> between Awashi, where Taru came out afterwards and gave him the Taru driller to Stalker. That's what it was. That's what it was. And you started mentioning Buku Dojo people. The next match was from later on. The first match, in, or at least the first televised match from this venue that is now the friendly confines of the Dragon System, Kobe Sambo Hall. It is Masaki Mochizuki and Taru versus uh takashi okamura and kono i don't have anything about kono case do you no i do not so kono i assume is a buku dojo graduate uh this match ended with crazy max running in uh crazy max i don't know if we talked about crazy max an hour in crazy max was the original unit of torimon and it was the before torimon actually started uh crazy max uh ultimo dragon sent his first class students over to michinoku pro because that relationship they've had long standing of great sasuke uh it was led by shima sua judo fuji oh sorry sumo fuji and taru but crazy max came in completely just ruined the match beat up all of buku dojo set the match for taru to win he got more checkies and then they beat the shit out of okamura on the way out <laughs> yeah you know, Crazy Max could be its Crazy Max could be its own podcast series. That could be the next rewind and rewatch we do because I don't even think I have a full grasp on just how impactful this unit was. Because from its inception through Shingo's debut until the end of two thousand four, 
Crazy Max was this promotion. And that's, I mean, that's the simplest way I can describe it was, you know, they were a day one. They lasted through Torimon into the early days of Dragon Gate. And this crew of Shima and Fuji and for a time Sua and for a time Taru were, you know, that this is this is the identity that the promotion formed. I, I don't know if there's been a promotion since. I mean, it, maybe the Jimmies would be like the the other most associated act with the with the promotion but even that it doesn't seem to compare yeah because it it was a touring act before Torimon even landed and it was something that it lasted longer than the Jimmys. like it lasted all through Torimon and it probably would have lasted farther into Dragon Gate if Sua never left yeah just because of like how big I mean Taru was already on the way out but they were kind of, but they were already trying to plug people in. And I mean, Crazy Max, in, in a lot of ways, was the story of 2000 or 1999 to 2004. All the big storylines kind of revolved around it. And it's kind of an interesting thing about this show, and especially how we kind of been beating around the bush here. The first episode's all about Magnum Tokyo, really. Yeah. Like, it, it is, Magnum Tokyo is our star. He was portrayed as the star, he was pushed as the star. But Shima became bigger than Magum Tokyo. The crowd really latched on to Shima, and they latched on to Crazy Max. I mean, I have a signed Shima Crazy Max t-shirt in my office I'm looking at right now. It's, it stands, oh, it, it hangs over my computer setup. It is like that kind of thing. And it, it was something that like the, the t-shirt became incredibly popular. It just became kind of like the house unit for a long time. Like it was a heel unit that was always working tweener, but it was more over than nearly every other unit in the company up until it closed. Or up until house, it ended. Uh, house unit is the perfect way to describe them. I wish I would have thought of that term myself, but I rely on you, my co-host, to do that sort of stuff for me. Perfect timing as the Absolute Amente 2002 show is up, because to me, that is the essence of Crazy Max summed up in one match, is those guys coming out in their battle gear, wrestling the Italian connection. And as Alan Forrell tweeted out earlier this week, and he's exactly right, that match, you watch Shima and you watch Milano and you realize that these are two guys that are just on another plane compared to, dare I say, most wrestlers in history. Just charisma, talent, in-ring ability. Those guys are on another level than most people that have ever attempted this profession. Yeah, and it's something that y you talk about that and you see that all in play for like the remainder of of this episode of voice gate, we'll be talking about this. Like you, th the story of basically 1999 to 2000 until M2K really was Shima versus Magnum Tokyo. And it kind of was one of those things that always was, which one was doing better. And then in a lot of ways, another person that Magnum Tokyo ran out of the company, uh, Milano collection, AT kind of filled a void there. And it's something like, cause we talked about that absolutamente trios match on speed star final on our speed That's star right, series. Yeah. Correct. And it's just uh, insane. I, I believe so. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, you attach yourself to Dragon Kid versus Darkness Dragon. That's your favorite match in Dragon Gate Torimon history, rightfully so. I, I honestly think I prefer that Crazy Max Italian Connection match just because, and I was thinking about this last night as I was kind of winding down my day, but Milano's run, and we'll get back to Torimon in just a second, but I have a chance to talk about Milano Collection AT, so I'm going to. Milano's run is so short in the grand scheme of things. He debuts at the end of 2001, and he's gone at the beginning of 2005. 
So really, there's three full years. In 2002, he's not working a full schedule. He's working that abridged T2P schedule. So you have barely three full years of this guy in Torimon and Dragon Gate. You only get, I believe, one Shima singles match. You get one Mochizuki singles match. You get one really big Magnum singles match, which somebody asked us a few days ago, what are the essential Magnum Tokyo matches? And I was like, well, I can't remember if his match versus Milano was good or if it just happened to be on a big show. And I still don't know the answer to that because I have not uh, gone back and rewatched their 2003 match. But Milano is just so good. And there's never been a wrestler like him. That's why I'm adamant when Greatest Wrestler Ever stuff comes around, that Milano is included on my ballot because that sample size is so short, but his run is so good. There's just never been a wrestler like him. And like I talked about with Chris and uh, and Bix on Between the Sheets, assuming WCW would have lived and assuming Torimon would have been involved to some degree, Mike, could you imagine Milano Collection AT doing the entrance with the glasses and the jacket and the invisible dog on WCW TV and how revolutionary that would have felt? Oh, I just think about like people know Magnum Tokyo because of the dancing fools like and you raise that exponentially. That's what you would get. I, yeah, you would I, get that, that same charisma, but with somebody that was actually worth a damn. Right, yeah. Uh, so something that popped in my head, we're talking about Milano and like, and he, the fact that he was here for a good time, not a long time. In a lot of ways, kind of like Tom Seaver. <laughs> yeah, Mike, that's what I was thinking. Was Milano Collection ATs a lot like Tom Seaver? <laughs> I, I, am I right on this comment? Tom Seaver didn't have a long career, I think. Yeah, no, Tom Seaver, uh, he pitched. No, no, I was thinking about Sandy Koufax. Sorry, I was thinking about the wrong Met. Oh, that's that that's a comp I can get down with. You know what? Milano yeah. was the Sandy Koufax of pro wrestling. That's a great comp. Well done, Mike. Disregard the last 15 seconds. Yeah, Milano Collection AT is the Sandy Koufax of pro wrestling. I'm down with that. But that's yeah, good shit. It, it, it's just something that just thinking about like Milano and I, I imagine that at Sturgis Milano doing the entrance <laughs> at Rome. Okay, okay, maybe we take him off that show because I just feel like there's going to be some verbiage used from the crowd that's not going to be yeah. very flattering towards Milano. <laughs> but I, I get it. Eric Bischoff has his motorcycle friends. We have to run a show there. Maybe just not. Maybe that's not a Milano show. Maybe not there. spring break. <laughs> Imagine it's spring go. break. Imagine it, all the drunk kids at Panama City with well, Milano. Th- that's the thing is, I, like, T2P is the perfect wrestling promotion for TikTok. Like, I feel like that's, if T2P came out now, there would be an influencer cashing in on, like, this is Pescatori Yagi. And this is Sexy Tarzan Yoshino. And this is Milano Collection AT. It's so... If it, it it's one of those if you know you know type deals where if you understand what T2P is, those characters are locked in your memory for forever. You have an immediate attachment to them. And I think that sort of stuff would play really well if somebody had the guts or the creativity or the means or preferably all three to book a promotion like that today, where it's so outlandish, but still rooted not in, you know, cartoon characters and super book and superheroes and supervillains, but you know, the fact is, you know, Yagi was a fisherman who took his job really seriously. I think that sort of stuff is needed in wrestling today, and it's absent everywhere. I mean, imagine Yosino on TikTok. That I would guy, love to see nothing more. 
that guy has gone wild there. But uh, getting to the main event of uh, the King of Dragon, January 1st. Oh, sorry, January 31st, 1999. This was an elimination tag match of Crazy Max, Shima, Sua, Don Fuji, known then as Shima Nobunaga, Judo Sua, and Sumo Fuji versus the... Uh, they didn't really have a name for this, but this was like the home army. This was Torimon home army of Magnum Tokyo, Saito, and Dragon Kid. So I've talked about this match already. I, and I, I will reiterate my thoughts in a second. But Mike, this is the big main event of the first show. 45-minute elimination match. What are your thoughts on it? Uh, I'm of several minds. Like, the, the this match and the way they edited it and the way they portrayed it, it got over several things apparently clear for every person in this match like everyone had their thing but on the show where everyone everything was tightly edited what they made sure to have was the full uh tokyo go and transfer magnum tokyo him coming out from the stairs in cork and hall having all the yen shoved into his tights i think before the uh, backseat boys kind of were doing that gimmick what the most like perceived absolutely as a star. He was competent in this. Uh, Saito, always smooth. Saito looked like a million bucks here. Uh, Crazy Max, like they, they really got over the fact that Crazy Max, when, it, when Crazy Max are able to get in control and isolate, it is something that's like they are dominant. If you let, it, if the hounds get you, you're not getting pulled out of that. Like Crazy Max in there. In a kind of offense that was just, Decades ahead of the time, really, when you think about like trios work, just like the stuff like the uh, the corner triple drop kicks and like Taru running interference and the way that they would kind of operate in a way until uh, until really getting to a point where it's just getting kind of obscene in a way. And the the, the one person that like we kind of been being around the bush this with this case, and it's something that for people who who watch this just like are in twenty twenty two eyes, Dragon Kid is not good now in nineteen ninety nine. He is. He shows flashes of it. He is outstanding. It, it's very similar to like how Estrella is now. He he has glimpses of being fantastic, but it just is something where it, it's just not clicking yet. It's more of a case on the second episode of Almost Amigos. But like his offense is almost all Rana base at this time and getting babyface fire. But the match is built around Magnum Tokyo and Shima. Shima gets. It, it, I have a note here. Oh, this, so this is Shima's battle versus his teeth start in this match because he's busted open hard in this match, bleeding from his mouth like 10 minutes in this match. Yeah, I think that's a dragon kid move, of course, right. that goes errant. And yeah, Shima, Shima gets fucked up early on in this match and then has to do a lot of stuff for the next 30 minutes or so. I, I, I largely agree with you. You know, there's something to be said, and it, it's just the way the wrestling fan psyche works where you hear... Oh, it's a six-man tag. It's it's forty-five minutes and it's the elimination. Well, I need to check that out. For whatever reason, those seem to be buzzworthy words. In the same way that two guys going an hour, whether the match is good or not, the fact that they win an hour is going to garner attention. So while the April version of this match, which has Arakan in place of Saito, but they run you know the same main five guys, that match is so much better. That's a borderline four-star match. This is not. This match is a mess. Dragon Kid, I think, is really bad. He blows a bunch of spots here. He blows a bunch of spots in the matches we'll talk about later. You have Saito, who's very smooth. Uh, you know, Magnum, I'll, I'll save my big picture thoughts for him for the end of this episode, but Magnum is serviceable. 
in this match. He doesn't do anything outright offensive, but he's, you know, he's not great. And then you have this crazy Max team where, you know, Fuji's good and you're not great yet. Sua, I don't totally think figures himself out until 2000. And then you have Shima, who is, you know, he's Shima. He, the, the guy had it figured out from day one, like I said earlier. So you end up with what is probably an amazing three-minute highlight package in a really bad 45-minute match. And uh, maybe you got a different vibe from it. I think they cut out maybe the first minute of this match on the Dragon Gate Network version, but this match airs pretty much in full. Yeah, no, th- this is something where they would cut up a lot of the early matches on Vamos Amigos, but they would air the most of the main event in full. So it just was something that, like, you could tell, like, when it was, it was like, clipped up, you could tell how jerky the match was. That's what I meant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, we, we get we get a very large portion of a 45-minute match, and, you know, whether or not that was the best move, I don't know, but things seem to work out 23 years later. Yeah, and, and it's something that very clearly at this point they were getting over the fact that Crazy Max just runs rough shot in this. And you like you look at this in a way as like this is a lot of people that were outside of like the Tokyo area and, and with uh and just like outside of Kobe, like how are we gonna portray that this new product to our fans? And you see Crazy Max just being like these despicable heels all throughout there with like undeniable charisma. You see Madam Tokyo who comes off like, yeah, he's jerky in this. This is actually one of probably Madam Tokyo's more complete performances, even though it wasn't very good here. And you get flashes of Dragon Kid, and you get Saito who kind of is the glue of this. Sua, Sua takes a couple of really gross bumps. That's what he was really good for up until he got going, I would say. Like the uh, gyrating uh, uh, Magnum, one of his like trademarks at this point is a gyrating uh, Frankenstein from the top rope. Sua takes it exactly on his neck. And he crumples with it. And it is one of the more nasty bumps I've seen in the last year. Which is crazy because he's already a bigger guy, especially in the context of this promotion. But you're right. That that first year, there's a lot of, I mean, until he gets, I mean, he gets hurt. So that makes sense. There's a lot of like, oh, Sewell really fucked himself up on that spot. Okay. All right. Good to know. It's kind of wild. It is kind of wild seeing it like that. So it's something. So the the first episode here, they aired, because I do have something to tell me about this. They, they aired 42 minutes of 45. So, so you're right. They, they aired most of that there. Uh, the, the eliminations were uh, Dragon Kid does the Dragon Rana on Sua. They showed the chemistry that we'd see much later. We saw a low blow and a second rope chokeslam on Saito from Don Fuji. We had a chokeslam turned into a Rana by Dragon Kid. So Dragon Kid was booked relatively strong in this match. Then we, we got a whole lot of uh, Crazy Max bullshit. Taru did an STO and then a Mad Splash to take out Dragon Kid. And then finally, it was the Viagra Driver, the Pump Handle Driver, and the AV Star Splash, his version of a Shooting Star Splash that did not land clean whatsoever on Shima to win it. And that Magnum Tokyo was the sole survivor for the home army. And that ended the first episode of Vamanos Amigos. It's a show that is worth watching if you have any investment in the history of the promotion, but it probably works better as background noise when you're sending emails or working on another project and not one to just sit down and go, okay, I'm going to watch some great wrestling because it's not present on this show. Yeah, and then uh, getting into episode two, we're going to talk a bit about this. This is mostly from Yokohama on February 7th, 1999. This is based around the... 
the NWA Walterweight Tournament and the IR, IW, I'm sorry, IWRG uh, Walterweight Championship that Shima has. Like a lot of these matches, at least early, we just get clips of. We started off with Dragon Kid versus Dr. Cerebro, who is a IWRG that is the home promotion of Arena Nakapon. Uh, we've talked about Nakapon being like a spiritual home base there. That's where everyone kind of is based there. Uh, Dragon Kid. Yeah, yeah. Th- th- this is not uh, necessarily another strong Dragon Kid performance here. No, this is a really rough match where they, you know, they. it, it seems like Cerebro is a decent base for Dragon Kid. They're going through their spots. They end up doing a double count out, but then Dragon Kid pleads to restart the match. Ultimo grants him the restart, and it's all building up to Dragon Kid hitting an Ultra Hurricane Rana, which he totally blows the first time, and they have to do it again. And that's the finish. So this is this is one of those rough matches. Again, it, it's amazing to see now where I feel like for the past 15 years or so, Dragon Kid has honed his instincts and his skills. And he's now one of these, you know, almost terribly consistent wrestlers where you know what you're getting from him every time. And for somebody like me, I'm a big fan of that. Obviously, if you you know, if you're not a fan of Dragon Kid in his normal output, then, you know, it's, I, I can see why it would turn you off because it's often so, so often the same thing. But early Dragon Kid is one of those guys who is just not a completed product. And if the first episode, first two episodes of this promotion are all about making Magnum Tokyo a star, his understudy, in a sense, is Dragon Kid. And whereas Magnum, for all of his faults, looks pretty damn good on this episode of TV, Dragon Kid is just as rough, if not rougher, than he was at that Quark and Hall show. So his stock is very, very low in 1999. And I don't know, is there a point in time where you feel like Dragon Kid really puts it all together? Do you have a specific era where you feel like he makes the change? Well, he he has it all together before before Absolute Mente. Like, that, that's undeniable there. But uh, it, it's something where, like, I would say into 2000, 2001, really it's the Sua feud that they start having like breakout feuds there. But even though that feud really was much later than that, he, it's something that maybe it is darkness dragon coming in with M2K that kind of pulled it together for him. Yeah. I, I guess I, I need to spend some time this weekend in the archives and really take a look at when he turns the corner because he gets hurt in April of 99. He's pretty much out for the rest of the year. Obviously, he has that great match with Sua in August of 2000. That's a pretty famous match, that hair versus mask match. But I don't know off the top of my head, and this is where where I fall short here, is I don't know if that was a one-off, rare, great Dragon Kid performance at the time, or if by the summer of 2000, he had figured out who he was as a wrestler. I lean towards that being a one-off run of greatness and then later on 2001 2002 he starts to put it all together yeah yeah because after that we had sua come out for a challenge this happened the next day so this was february 8th uh dragon kid versus sua and he was even more rough in this one (laughs) right after that and it just you know they had the chemistry you saw the sua and dk chemistry immediately just Dragon Kid's not there, and Sua, you know, take, took him getting hurt to get really strong there. So it just is something like the rewind Hurricane Rana that he does always looks pretty cool. He does like a rewind Mysterioso Rana, and that that was pretty tight. Yeah, it's a great looking spot. It's funny watching Sua in this match, a man who both in Toriumon and in Noah 
was a confident, badass, shit-kicking heel. And you look at him here, and he has acting in track pants. And it's like, wow, this man this man took a journey throughout his career. Because, yeah, the, the chemistry is there, but the talent is not. They were a little too ambitious in this match, and I don't want to continue beating a dead horse. But it's, you know, a year later, they would have a great match. This is not a great match. What was what I thought was a probably one of the early solid matches like I would say that this match with exception of the main event on this show was the best match we saw was Shima Nobunaga aka Shima defending his IWRG welterweight championship versus Magnum Tokyo this was from Osaka two days before Shima won with the full course of Venus Iconoclasm and Mad Splash to win this match and this was something that I was kind of surprised by as someone who does not like Magnum Tokyo at all I was like this is actually a really solid main event and it's in Osaka it's in Shima's hometown and they were rabid for him I really like this match I I'll save my Milano or not my Milano my Magnum thoughts for the great Sasuke match in particular what I will say here is that th- this match this match I rewatched this match and it made me angry because it just shows how good Shima has been for so long because this is a match where Magnum hangs with him you know Magnum is on an active detractor in this match but from opening bell to the final bell, this is a Shima performance. This is Shima having the crown in the palm of his hands as, you know, what, a 21-year-old maybe, 22 at this time? It's it's 21. It's in 21, a 21-year-old guy on a new venture. You know, this is their first show in Osaka. It's their third show ever. And you look at this, and granted, we have, you know, what would come, and we know now watching this, what Shima would become, but you just look at this even in a vacuum and you go, that's the guy. This guy is special. This guy is different. The way he controls this crowd, the way he controls this match and the way that his pace, you know, Shima, uh, Shima's big matches always have a certain feel to them. And that feel was even prevalent here where you just, I I just trusted that this match, and I, it had been years since I had seen it. Probably the last time I watched it was when it was, when the Dragon Gate Network launched, and this match was one of the first things put up on there. You just watch Shima, and you just go, well, I it, it's going to be good enough. He's going to figure it out. And there was, you know, a lot of Crazy Max heel shenanigans. You see that act a little bit more honed on, on this episode of TV rather than the Cork and Hall show. It just all starts to come together. And the root of this monologue is that Shima is otherworldly and even here where it's rough around the edges they don't totally nail every spot and shima's not as good as he would become you still look at him here and he's better than just so many other wrestlers yeah and it's something where you could very easily kind of see like 21 year old shima like when his knees were still fine and his neck was good it just is something that it's like this guy if, if his health was a little better and you know he wasn't shima Thing, like the the questions about him being a Hall of Famer would not be in doubt just because like he was showing this a year and a half into his career like not even two years in his career n- not even 22 years old he's 21 and in his hometown already knows that he's started like and this is like it's worth saying like yeah he did some touring with Michinoku Pro but this very much is like the big homecoming show for Shima and he comes off like an absolute legend and if you watch that Crazy Max and Michinoku Pro stuff, which maybe that's an episode we'll do during a dead period, is going through what we have of that footage, where they land in August of 1998. This is as Michinoku is preparing for the Osaka split. I don't know if I don't know if Delphin is gone from the company yet, but they know that the split is coming. 
after the Kaintai guys have left, this promotion is on Death's Door, and they bring in Shima and the rest of Crazy Max in the middle of 1998. And again, it's like it, it it's it's like nothing else. It's like oh, this promotion was slow, rapidly decaying, and then Shima comes in. He's immediately the most entertaining guy on the roster. Shima in Michinoku Pro is so fun to watch because he is so cocky. He is just a beast. He is an animal. And I can't believe how young he was and how confident he was. And it comes across here in this Magna match as well, where this is a guy who, you know, for all of his faults, and Shima certainly has many of them, but sometimes I like an evil genius that believes his own bullshit. And Shima, at his best, is an evil genius that believes his own bullshit. And it's prevalent here, it's prevalent in Michinoku Pro, and it's present in Gleet. Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit about Shima believing his own bullshit when we get into the main event of the show. Uh, then we got clips from the uh, NWA Middleweight Championship Tournament. We got some semifinal matchups. Uh, the first one, Magnum Tokyo versus Sumo Fuji. Uh, Magnum won at the AV Star Press that missed by a mile in like three minutes. So this was all <laughs> clipped up. Yeah, I have, I have no thoughts on these uh, these middle matches that are super clipped. We did get to see Grand Nanawa versus the Great Sasuke in the other one. Uh, he won with a uh, he he got he got a roll four from a uh, Hurricane Rana one there. Then we got Shima versus Sasuke the Great, Evil Sasuke, in the last semifinal of this tournament. He Shima would hurt his knee here, but it was this clipped up as well here. But he looked like a monster winning with a mad splash, and that led to the main event. Uh, the, the thing about this main event, and we'll get into the post-match stuff, which plays into the Michinoku Pro thing. Great Sasuke versus Magnum Tokyo for the vacant NBA middleweight championship match. And we got to see the entire thing <laughs> of this match. And it was Great Sasuke after a war and after a battle with a huge, with doing stunts onto a table. Sasuke was always this crazy. He was always insane. In 1999, he won with the Thunderfire Powerbomb winning the title in 22 minutes and 51 seconds. So they were going long in these matches, even as relative rookies. Yes. It's funny watching this match and realizing that this is essentially what would become the classic Dreamgate structure where this match starts slow. And I knew, at least in the back of my head, I was like, no, I've seen this before and I really like this match, but it takes so long to get going that I was afraid that, you know, my memory had lied to me and that maybe this match was a total dud and I shouldn't be giving Magnum the credit that I'm about to give him. But no, they turn it around. You're absolutely right. Sasuke is out of his mind in this match. There's a spot, and I, I, maybe you just mentioned, I was looking up stuff that I, I admittedly only heard half of it, but Magnum Tokyo is on a table on the outside and, and Sasuke does a springboard dropkick onto Magnum onto that table, which is just mental. I mean, who would do that? Oh my God, it's such a fun match. It, it's something that like and, and i think it's worth like saying like in, in the post match of this uh crazy max comes in attacks sasuke and nanawa uh, makes fun of Ma uh, magna tokyo who is crying at this point like it's very clear like as we've kind of been i i feel like we we've the, this dead horse has been hammered well enough we, we have destroyed the carcass here magnum is the, supposed to be the star tori bond and he is crying. He is completely out of it. But then the, they tear off because they're wearing Sasuke Gumi t-shirts. And this is like the thing about like you're talking about Michinoku Pro with Crazy Max is that Crazy Max came in because Michinoku Pro was built up so much around Kai and Tai Deluxe versus Home Army. And then 
all Kaintai leaves, so they bring in Crazy Max to turn Sasuke heel and have Sasuke Gumi. And all the while, they think, like, oh, he's still, they're still members of this. They turn on them, beat up uh, Sasuke, beat up Grand Nanawa, and then he would, and Shima cuts a promo basically saying, like, oh, my knee was hurting, but I would be the champion if it, if it was me and you. And who is it to make the save case? Who is it to make the save, Mike? It is Takamichi Noku showing up. <laughs> and it's worth talking about Shima and Taka's crew before we get out of here. Because it's this is like one of the funnier kind of feuds that, that have been simmering for like the last 23 years. <laughs> because Shima just like at age 20 decides to light uh, Takamichi Noku's passport on fire. <laughs> Tremendous angle. Really, really well done. It's interesting when Dave talks about uh, the first Torimon show in The Observer, he mentions that they're going to be running, you know, a limited schedule in Japan. They're going to be in Mexico and that they're also going to be aiding Michinoku Pro because at that point, Torimon had become the main draw of Michinoku Pro. But they're really not around much in 1999. They work a few shows here and there, but it's kind of. It's a it's a it's dead on arrival almost like Crazy Max lands and Torimon hits Japan and they just out they they remove Michinoku Pro from relevancy so quick. So I don't know what happened there. I don't know if there was a business relationship that fell out. Obviously, we get more of Taka throughout Torimon than Trangate and beyond, but it seemed like this 1999 should have been Crazy Max versus Michinoku Pro, but in reality, that doesn't really happen. Yeah, and I... Michinoku Pro is one of those promotions that like I go and I've watched... like. A part of the greatest wrestler ever. That's why I discovered my new favorite wrestler case, Masato, Masato Yakasuji. Yes. So it, it, it's something that I always enjoy, but like the timeline always confusing. Like I feel like that there was like the big plan of like that happening. And then maybe that's when the Osaka Pro and Delphin split started to really happen and kind of tore the company asunder. Because really after this point, Michinoku Pro, it still kind of like exists. And then all the Torimon X guys appear there. But like this is a time where Michinoku Pro drops out of like mass international relevancy yeah that's uh it's very strange i would love to know the original plans i would love to know if something fell through because the vibe that i get from this angle from everything that dave wrote and just from the way that crazy max tore up michinoku pro in 1998 it seems like most of this year should have been the reverse that it should have been crazy max versus michinoku pro and torimon and that just doesn't happen, which is very strange. But Sasuke is here on this show. He wrestles Magnum. It is a great match. I went four and a quarter on it and finished with an honorable mention vote or with, I'm sorry, with multiple honorable mention votes It finished in the honorable mentions category of the 1999 Observer Match of the Year. So this clearly had some traction more so than the six man tag on the first show. It is one that I would highly recommend. Yeah, so just so that I get the, the time correct here, uh, Osaka Pro started a lot earlier than this, so that's not the reason. It's just something really kind of... It, it took the step back there. I, I would go three and three quarters on this. I thought this was excellent. I thought this, like, Magnum looked great here, and even, like, the grappling, even, like, the Dreamgate grappling actually kind of worked in the opening for me. It was nice to see, and then Sasuke is just such a command of presence that he was able to kind of harness... Uh, the charisma of Magnum Tokyo and limited ability to have probably one of the better Magnum Tokyo matches. This does not make my four star list. This is not going to be something that helps him out in his battle against Punch Tomonaga in my books. Okay, let's let's put this together here real quick because 
cage match shows the first osaka pro show is april of 99 but i know that split they were aware that this was coming in 98 long before this yeah they, they were aware of it in 1998 so i i don't know if anybody has info on i i guess if we were supposed to have more michinoku pro versus torimon stuff and something business related happened or there was you know uh, a, a relationship that fell apart. Please let us know because I'm very curious about this now. I hadn't really thought about this up until now, but yeah, with Taka coming out, it just seems like that should have been the focal point of this promotion this year. But in April, they're not there, and then they show up again at World, and that's kind of the end of it. So that's very interesting to me. This is a mystery that that must be solved now. Another mystery, and Mike, I want your input on this because my big takeaway watching the first show for Between the Sheets and then watching uh, the, the February content that's on the Dragon Gate Network for this show is, I think, for as critical as we've been of him for this 90-minute podcast, the first Tori Montour, to me, is the best run of Magnum Tokyo's career. <sighs> that four-way. Like, when they're able to hide him into the multi-team tags, though, that's the thing... <laughs> But, well, but it, but this is one tour. It's essentially a week of his life right. where he comes across like a megastar in Cork and Hall. He has a really fun match with Shima and he has a great match with Sasuke. And if you look at the rest of his career, I just don't think he hits those highs ever again. Yeah, it, it's difficult because the Doofixer turn was such a awesome storyline, but that was all storyline stuff. You know, that was all based on that. And him taking over M2K after Mochizuki leaves, shaves his head, and declares that he'll be fighting clean. He was, when he turned to Mr. Ikatis, it was like great character stuff, but it wasn't necessarily wrestling. Yeah, so. I can't think of, because that's 2002, and off the top of my head, I can't think of a go-to Magnum match other than the famed, the first uh, three-team trios matches that they did, those nine-man tags. I can't think of anything else off the top of my head where I go, yeah, Magnum was awesome in those matches. I am going to. I'll say what I'm doing right now. I am on cage match. I'm pulling up Madam Tokyo. We're going to be wrapping up shortly. His match guide. Let's see what they have in the match guide for him. And, and while you're looking that up, Mike, I do, I do want to mention something else about Magnum real quick. It's something that is not on the Drangate Network, but it is on uh, the commercial tape for these shows that we just covered. I'm going to upload it to the Open the Voice Gate Twitter, so you'll see it when this episode gets uploaded. There is a scene. After Magnum versus Sasuke, you mentioned Magnum crying in the ring. They go backstage and the camera shows Magnum and Ultimo sitting on the floor, bawling. Two grown men crying their eyes out at the result of Magnum losing this match to the great Sasuke. And again, for all of his faults, for as much shit as we've talked about him now and as, uh, as much shit as we will talk about in the future when it comes to Magnum Tokyo... This is an awesome scene. This is as likable as he ever was, was he is distraught over this loss, and he and Ultimo have this moment backstage on the ground, and it is beautiful to see. I love when men cry and wrestling, and Magnum Tokyo did it just about better than anybody else. And, and that's the thing about Magnum. Like, it's undeniable. He is a star. He is the star. Like, it was smart having him come out through the showing him come out through the crowd in Cork and and showing him get all of the end shoved into it. He could barely get into the ring. Like the crowd was soaring him like that. Like he charisma wise, he had it. It just was something that was very clear 
And maybe some of it was him being hurt. Some of it was a little bit of him just being Magnum. Just didn't. I remember Jay once saying this that Shima, Dragon Kid, Mochizuki, they all improved and surpassed him. And Magnum just could not keep up and never improved. So maybe it is that this one week period between January 31st, 1999 through uh, February 7th was his best singles part of his career. And how certain am I of this? I'm just going to use this colloquially. So, you know, if this is if this is something that people object to, whatever. The cage match match guide of Magnum Tokyo has 21 matches on it. Case. Take a guess how many of these matches are singles matches. I think you have these two. And I think you have the Milano match from 2003, and that's probably it. And Case hits a home run. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, 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 here's, and here's even like the more sad thing about this. Nearly every single one of these, these 21 matches, one of them is a World War III Battle Royal. So we'll throw that one out. Wow. I'm just going to run down the match types here. Tag team. Eight-man tag team, best two out of three falls. Six-man tag. Six-man tag. For the four-way match. 10-man elimination, 10-man elimination, 6-man tag team match, 9-way, nine 9-man, nine 3-way elimination match from Kobe World in, 2000 and, in 2002, the first cage Apuesas match, 3-way 9-man, trios, trios, Atomico, trios, trios. That sums up Magnum Tokyo's career quite well. He benefited off of others' hard work pretty often. <laughs> that is certainly... Uh, I mean, that's the way I'm taking it, to say the very least. Does if if me... Toriumon was a group project, Magnum Tokyo would be the one not pulling his weight. Uh, well, did you have? Did you use Blackboard or like Canvas or something when you were in school? I used both. I used Angel as well. Do you remember Angel? Angel? I'm, this is this is me showing my age. Angel wasn't a thing. He's I believe one... that is. I, I believe Blackboard is what Angel became. I think Angel okay. might have been a predecessor for Blackboard, and then I used Canvas in college. Anyways, you have my attention with learning software. Go ahead, Mike Spears. You have the floor. So whenever you've done like a group project with this, so basically for those who have not used these softwares, it's basically collaboration. Like you, like you can do task quizzes, submit paperwork. It's just like an online platform for this. But like in group projects, like you would have like the breakout chats, like the little bulletin board there. Magnum Tokyo is the one that's like, we need to have a discussion here about your reading or about the article, and you have to like give thoughts about this. He's the one that's like, you must write at least a paragraph or two. He's the one that will write a three-sentence, 50-word paragraph. Very, very well put, Mike. From now on, I hope we integrate more learning management systems into our <laughs> podcast because those are analogies that I completely understand. And in a way, that is the perfect encapsulation of the first Tori Montour. Yeah. And it's, do you have any other big thoughts about this first tour? I mean, like, my, my big takeaway is how big of a fucking star Magnum Tokyo is it? <laughs> and, and, and how infuriated I am at the passage of time with Shima and Susumu. Yeah, I mean, look, I wish Ultimo had put a bunch of stock behind Saito instead of Magnum Tokyo, but that's just not the world we were living in. I get it. I don't like it, but I understand it. And no, these are these are fun shows to watch. If you've never seen them, it's worth carving out some time going through the big stuff and, and getting an understanding of how this promotion came to be and, and you know, hopefully you have better appreciation for what it is now. But yeah, it's it's a fun show, uh, uh, two fun shows, rather. And I think Magna versus Sasaki, uh, uh, Great Sasuke, if you've never seen it, is well worth your time. Yeah, absolutely. This is something we will probably we'll, we'll find places 
to revisit this stuff. I mean, we are in the 20th anniversary year of Absolute, Absolutamente 2002. So maybe when we get closer to that, that might be a good thing for us to, you know, we'll write this down and revisit that later. But we'll be back next week. We we have a big corking on Friday. Of course, that is Kai's first defense of the Open the Dreamgate title against Takashi Yoshida, who's teasing long boys. I saw that. Did, did you see the long boys that Yoshida had on on Twitter? I, I didn't, but for whatever reason, that makes me really nervous about that match. Not that he's going to win, but that the match is going to suck. Yeah, you know, uh, but we'll we'll get probably more unit shakeup stuff there. We'll be back next week to talk all about it. And we're in February now. It's a busy, busy February and early March for Dragon Gate. We've got later on this month, uh, Memorial Gate in Wakayama, and then the first week of March will be Champion Gate in Osaka. But that's going to do it. You can follow us on Twitter at Open Voice Gate. I'm at Fujiheya. Case is at underscore in your case. But that's going to do it. Thanks for listening to Open the Voice Gate. We'll be back next week talking about the Cork and the Hall show. Take care.